The funny thing is, there's plenty of data out there that says, hey, for all this investment in digital and social media, a huge proportion of advertisers who've made a lot of investment are not growing at all. That's what they need. Who talks about that in the ad agency business? Nobody. What people talk about is how great our creative is and awards that we win. Rarely is it possible, as in a medical or clinical trial, to follow a story from the inside as it unfolds. But in the case of Huge and its bold CEO, Matt Baxter, that is what Michael has been able to do in this book. That is the foreword to Michael Farmer's new book, Madison Avenue Makeover. Michael Farmer, prior to founding Strategy Consultancy for Advertisers, uh, Farmer and Company in 1992, was a strategy consultant with the Boston Consulting Group and director of Bain and Company. We are very glad to have Michael joining us today at the Media Leader podcast to discuss his new book. Um, can you just set the scene for us? How do you know Matt? What did he ask of you? Um, how did the ball get rolling? Oh, very interesting process. Matt, I first got to know uh, as a result of some publicity around a speech that he gave in Australia and subsequent articles were written where he talked about ditching the pitch. And the, the concept was, why are we in a business that is busy pitching for new business just to replace clients that we've lost? Why shouldn't we be in the business of sustaining long-term relationships with our clients? And I loved it. I, I love the expression, ditch the pitch. And I said, I want to use it in my own emails. But it was also consistent with what Bain and Company had been preaching since the early 1980s when I was, uh, you know, a new uh, executive there. Bill Bain believed that chasing new business was not half as good as making clients perform better so that they kept you forever. So I agreed with Matt and I emailed him as a result. And we had a bit of an email exchange. He was then the uh, global chief executive officer of uh, Initiative, one of IPG's big media agencies. And then um, later, I tried to get a meeting with him just to say hello and to introduce myself. Uh, instead, that led to him introducing me to Amy Armstrong, the North American CEO of Initiative, and she engaged me to do some work, which went on for the next couple of years, so that I, I I ended up working in Matt's company, but I never met him. And I never was able to introduce myself other than through email. So I discovered that he had read Madison Avenue Manslaughter. And after he joined Huge and called me a month later, he reiterated that he had read the book and liked it. And invited me, you know, invited me to um, to write a book about the transformation that he was going to do. I didn't actually meet Matt until we had lunch together in New York to hammer out the details of uh, the book project. And uh, I met him for the first time, I think, over a lunch in August or September of 2021. Mm -hmm. And then, of course spent a lot of time with him at the first management retreat, which went on for a couple of days in Rhode Island, mm -hmm. where, you know, he was leading his management team and, and I was sitting as a fly on the wall. So that's Amazing. how it all happened. I think Matt said to you as well that he also didn't, uh, had no interest in you 
uh, writing, you know, propaganda for him, that he wanted you to be able to be critical. Um, and, and really what he was looking for was, was a guide, just somebody well-placed internally to be able to narrate what's going on and to have a critical eye um, and to criticize the things that need to be criticized, but also just document this process of transformation as it's unfolding. Um, I think he said, and this is what you, the quote that you included in the book, we need a guide that outlines a different business model for agency leaders. I've been at Huge for a month and I see how much we need a new way of thinking about what the agency should do. We could work on a writing project, you and Huge, while my management team is sorting out the future. So um, that's, that's the nature of the writing project. It's fraught with ambiguities. Um, you're not sure at this point what it's going to look like. And Matt, at this point, is unsure about what he's going to do at Huge. One thing which also uh, kind of bears noting is, and I believe this is something you mentioned in the book, Huge at this point had had, had three CEOs who um, had recently resigned from the company. Is that correct? Yes, uh, they they were replaced by if either resigned or left yeah. under pressure from IPG. Actually, uh, there were four CEOs in the past four years. Wow. Matt was the fifth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first first of those four, of course, was a longstanding uh, was a longstanding CEO who left and then was replaced with short termers. Mm-hmm. But it was there was a lot of pressure because although huge isn't a, a very big part of IPG's portfolio. They need all their agencies to grow and be profitable. And it had been stagnant since 2016. Yep. It worked out well because he hired the, the business model company, TBMC, hmm. a London-based firm, to give him the guide on the transformation. And once he had that, well, he was off to the races. He knew what he was going to do. He organized his 20-person team very appropriately over the next uh, 15 months or so. Yeah, It was a good project. I have told Matt, I said, Matt, I think you were a little crazy to hire me <laughs> and give me total independence to write a book that you yeah. could not influence yeah. before yeah. you even knew what you were going to do and not to want it to be a puff piece about you. And Ahmed, let me mm-hmm. underscore in all of my discussions with Matt, he wanted me to take out stuff that, you know, I let him review the manuscript, but he wanted to take out stuff that made it look like he was in charge, he was running things, these were all his ideas. He said, this is a huge team effort. Hmm. And I don't I don't want this book to, to make it look like I was everything. He yeah. said, because that's not how it worked. And I did indeed, you know, modify a number of things in the book to to emphasize the fact that it was a Matt and his 23-person management team and TBMC who, you know, put this foundation in place. Yeah. It's their work. It's my book. It's something which I found really interesting. Like you said, <laughs> Matt might have been uh, a little, you know, a little crazy to, to give you full authorial uh, independence to be able to write whatever you wanted. Because uh, I believe, like we mentioned, you know, there had been four CEOs quite recently. Uh, the last three had done resigned or left, but not also that. Uh, Matt is was new to, to being at a creative agency. He, I mean, he'd really made his bones in media. And it's sort of something which might be analogous is, you know, uh, watching three comedians on stage be be heckled off stage and then 
turning to your friend and saying, I'm going to go up and do a set now. This is the first time I do stand-up comedy. Um, and you should film the whole thing and, and publish it online. Um, so, you know, I suppose, I'm not sure if it's completely analogous, uh, but there's something to the, the risk of that, which I think, you know, uh, tracks. Um, and, and that's a quality which he described himself as having and I suppose other people have described him as having he's 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 always been a risk taker he's been you know um at various points he's described as in your book as rebellious as perhaps crazy I think when he was at Mediacom as chief strategy officer and he was you know trying to implement a sort of transformation there you know he he said he was a, a bit tyrannical about his approach um, and I suppose at every stage uh, of his journey, I suppose he's, he's picked up more. Uh, so in terms of, if we can go into perhaps your experience of his character while you were kind of documenting this and the, um, the, the transformation he was trying to bring about, do you think it was, uh, the, these qualities were important for the transformation he was trying to bring about? What, what role do you think they played? Well, I think, uh, the the book talks about Matt's career as a as a young media executive in Australia, which is where he's from. Um, born in the UK, but his parents emigrated when he was, I guess, about twelve years old to Australia, and uh, he left university at age twenty or so and joined Zenith, which was then a media independent. I would say about Matt is that he's got an extremely strong moral core. He believes in right and wrong. He thinks they're right way to do things and they're wrong way to do things. And uh, he was sort of offended in his first job at uh, Zenith when he was 20 years old. And I think he worked there till he was 26 while he was learning the media business. He was sort of offended that the client service people were promoting television advertising to uh, clients because they make because media agencies then made the most money on television advertising. Mm. It wasn't necessarily the right vehicle. And, you know, shortly thereafter, digital and social were coming in, but they were they continued to espouse the medias that made the most money for Zenith. Yeah. And that, that was an industry characteristic. And Matt, Matt, told me and others told me at the time that I interviewed that he found this highly offensive. He said, we shouldn't be doing that. We should be giving media neutral advice. We yeah. should give them the advice that matters for them. And when he left uh, Zenith and went to Naked as one of the three founders for Naked Australia, he was delighted to discover that Naked was all about media independence. I mean, uh, independent media neutrality. Yeah. And that that was one of their core values. And he loved it. Now, what he what Matt has never been afraid to do is rattle people's cages. You know, hmm. uh, it, he doesn't mind being confrontational, but but he never holds grudges. And he loved the playing field that advertising required because you could do crazy stuff. And Naked had a bit of a reputation for being, you know, crazy. And he admits that as one of the three founders, he had his fingers into everything. You know, the way the office was designed, what the logos looked like, all the communications, anything they would say to the press. Mm -hmm. And when he later went on 
to Mediacom uh, in Australia that was a turnaround situation. And UM, which Australia, which he ran, he admits, I interfered in everything because <laughs> I had a certain view of how it should be. So he was an interferer. And when he moved to the States uh, and eventually became the CEO of Initiative, by that time, you know, he was, this is 2016, he was a lot more mature. He had had a lot of turnaround experience and he recognized he needed to work with a team for the large organization he was working with. So he learned, it isn't all about me. I, I can't drive change myself. All I can do is inspire my team. And then finally, Ahmed, when he moved to a creative agency, he said, look, I don't know how they work at all. Hmm. And I've got to get the data and I've got to get uh, uh, as many perspectives as possible. But I want to do the right thing. And he told me about having read Madison Avenue Manslaughter. He said it was a great education on what the wrong things were. Yeah. And that if the industry is doing so many wrong things in the way it positions itself with its clients, in the way it prices for its services, in the nature of the work that it does, and the way it's organized, you can be sure he was going to do something about it. And as it turned out, uh, you know, he led a change in mission. He led a change in the way they're paid. He led a transition in the way their products were put together. And he led a, a major transformation of their organization. But I would say all of this comes out of this deep sense that he has as an individual. There's a right way and a wrong way. And the right way is what we should be doing for clients, even if that isn't what the industry is doing for clients. Yeah. So Matt is, um, you know, he he has an inherent way of figuring out what the right thing is. And he put together a lot of information to develop an understanding of what the right way was for HUGE. And a lot of that came from his own management team who had been at HUGE. Like at the first retreat, he asked, what makes a great company? Let's talk about what makes a great company. And they discussed that. And then he asked, is HUGE a great company? Do we match any of those criteria for what we're doing for our yeah. work? I think I think there was one point where he asked, you know, what is what is you know something great that we've done? Um, and I think you said there was silence in the room. There was a huge silence. A huge silence. But then individuals said, "Well, we're doing this for, you know, they have some very big and prominent clients, hmm. and they certainly had a history of doing some great work." But there wasn't anyone that was around to know that. I think. I found very few people that had more than a seven or eight year hi history with the company. So certainly no one in 2021 could go back to 1999 when Huge was founded mm -hmm. and did some really great work for JetBlue and IKEA and a number of other companies. So, yeah, there was a huge silence at Huge, the Huge <laughs> retreat when he said, can you give me an example of anything great yeah. we're doing right now? And Whoops. Well, I, I don't nope. want to skip to skip ahead. You know, I think we're, we're going yeah. to get to the, the huge retreat. Um, but obviously going into this process, I think you wrote that you had your own views, you, you know, as to what Matt was going to do, what the nature of the transformation needed to be. And what you said was, uh, my observations would prove to be only partly true. Uh, Baxter would take the huge organization in directions I could never have imagined. The forthcoming transformation would be radical and dramatic, 
And then later on in that passage, you said it would prove to be a visionary solution for the industry's challenges. So this is where I really think you get the sense that this, you know, this uh, is no longer just a book about one transformation and one creative agency. This is about laying out a, a blueprint for a, a paradigm shift, which the industry as a whole can can follow. You know, in the conclusion of the book, in the last chapter of the book, you take a really interesting tangent into philosophy of science of all things. And I'm sure, you know, our, our listeners will be, you know, cultured uh, philosophers, but just, you know, on the off chance that they're, they're not. <laughs> you can go into this idea of a Vacunian paradigm shift. Explain, explain to me what that is and the paradigm shift that you understand that needs to occur within the advertising business. What is the current paradigm um, and what is the paradigm that Matt, I think, is trying to usher in? Okay, well, I learned at Bain from Bill Bain in the very early days when I was there. He said, I don't want to do consulting. I don't want to be a consultant. I don't want to answer briefs for clients or proposals. I want to make a difference in client results and work for our clients forever. And so our mission has to be improved results for clients, hmm. not being creative or doing creative things or doing creative ads. And I was thinking, just like Bill Bain said, I don't want to do consulting. Agencies do say, I want to be creative. I want to do work that's creative. They never say anything about whether it generates anything for clients or not. Yeah. And there are numerous examples of tremendous award-winning work that has absolutely done nothing for clients, like at Burger King, which is a terribly poor performer, but you know its uh, CMO and its agencies have won all kinds of creative awards for things that have not encouraged customers to eat Whoppers. So uh, in the book, I talked about, you know, in Madison Avenue manslaughter, I talked about agencies need a different mission. I also said in the book that the major failure of agencies is that they don't keep they don't keep track of the work they do. They don't measure the amount of work they do, and they don't even negotiate how much work they're going to do when they agree to a fee. Mm. That's nuts because they're like ad factories that have no idea what their outputs are, and yet they're agreeing to fees. And so that's the whole theme of the book is you've got to do you've got to do a different job on pricing. So when I think about Matt's transformation, he did change the mission with his management team. And he did change the way they would be paid. But at the beginning of the book, uh, when I was first starting it, I thought, one of the things he's going to have to do is document how much work he does and uh, and, you know, and track it and negotiate that amount of work with clients. Well, he did it in a completely different way, but he did it. He now sells products at a fixed price. And having products at a fixed price is very different from my idea of know the cost of every agency creative deliverable, you know, like, how much does it cost to do a TV ad or a print ad or a radio ad or a Facebook post mm. or an Instagram post or an online video or any any of that stuff? Mm. That was what my technology did. Matt said, no, we only need 45 products. They have a fixed price. <laughs> what I didn't anticipate 
was that he would take a 12 office system, which is what he had. It, huge was really 12 independent offices, 12 independent strategies, 12 independent income statements, 12 independent company presidents. Hmm. He said, no more of that nonsense. We're going to be a single company. The people in the company are being going to be in a global pool of resources. We will allocate those resources to clients rather than having everyone feel that their home is in the UK or in Singapore or in California or in Atlanta or Washington, D.C. or Brooklyn. Yeah. So yeah, he went much beyond that. And uh, I applaud what he did. I, I was on the journey with them. I was writing the book. I learned a lot. Yeah. And it has influenced me. Now nice. let's shift to the, the topic about what is a paradigm change. Yeah. I don't know why I ever read this book by Kuhn, Thomas K-U-H-N, written in 1960, called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Hmm. But in my in my brain, I wondered how it was possible for scientists who do experiments all the time. How it is that when a new theory comes in, they're able to shift the kind of research they do so rapidly. You know, when the Big Bang Theory came in and it wasn't accepted by everyone, you know, which basically said that the universe began 46 billion years ago mm. with a singularity. There was no time before then. There was nothing before then. And boom. And uh all of a sudden, astrophysicists were, you know, taking that theory and doing what they could with it. And I thought, why is it possible for science to do that? And an entire agency industry can't. Yeah. The yeah. advertising industry is stuck in thinking that it's 1960 and creativity is all that matters. Because it did back then. Hmm. And they're still doing and thinking the same exact way. Even though the way they're paid has changed, the role that they're given by their clients has changed, the technology has changed, yeah. the number of channels in which their creative work goes has changed, and yet they still think, hey, we're all about creativity. Isn't it great? And look how many awards we've won for how great we are. Oh, well, that's that's. Um... And I thought it is such old style thinking that belies everything that can be said about the industry today. Why is it scientists can change and they can't? So I read that book, hmm. and I and I in the final chapter of Madison Avenue Makeover, I said, you know, it's too early to know whether Matt's transformation is going to work. Yeah. He just started. It may be. It might take five years to figure out. So I can't write a a final chapter of the book that says, hey, <laughs> look how great it is. Yeah, I couldn't yeah, do that. exactly. But what I could say is, just like scientists new scientists who come into the business and articulate a new theory that better explains existing data than old theories matt baxter as an outsider came into the creative world and articulated a new theory for an ad agency that represents what kuhn called a paradigm shift now we use paradigm shift all the time for minor stuff Paradigm shift for him was Copernicus said the sun is at the center of the uh, solar system mm -hmm. or the universe, not the earth. Yeah. 
that flew in the face of the Catholic Church and it flew in the face of Ptolemy. It flew in the face of what then scientists were measuring. And uh, people who subscribed to Copernicus's theory were even burned at the stake yeah. by the Catholic Church because it was heresy. Uh, later, you know, Newton articulated the paradigm that we so are associated with him, and Einstein upended it mm -hmm. so that we now talk about space-time. Yeah. And, and you think something, something similar is happening now in the advertising industry, that the, the, the creative paradigm, as you refer to it, is perhaps on the precipice of, of being an upended uh, by, by another paradigm, by a results paradigm. Uh, by the result. Well, see, here's the thing. Again, uh, Kuhn and his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, asserts that scientists do experiments all the time. And the data that they generate, and, and they do those experiments in the context of existing theories of science. And a lot of the time, the data that their experiments generate are not consistent with the theories, but not enough to throw this theory away. In mm -hmm. fact, scientists deal with data anomalies all the time. Mm. Uh, only when the anomalies get to be so huge is science in a state of crisis. And that's when usually an outsider comes in. Einstein was an outsider. He was a he worked in a patent office in Zurich. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't a scientist, mm. except you know, a mathematician on the side. Came from the outside and completely upended things. Yeah. Now, I have asserted that my first book, Madison Avenue Manslaughter, demonstrated that the data about the advertising industry didn't match the theory that creativity is great. Why? Well, uh, if creativity really worked and it's all that was needed, clients would be growing, advertising agencies would be paid a lot of money because they're doing stuff that works, advertising practitioners would also be paid a lot of money, clients would last forever, and people would make long-term careers in this industry. None of those things are true today, and they haven't been true for at least 20 years advertisers are not growing even though advertising agencies are giving them creative work mm -hmm. agencies fees have been in decline for 30 years even though their workload is growing well you know if you're being paid worse and worse every <laughs> year maybe it suggests your product isn't very good yeah ad agencies are being fired every three years yeah. well if they're so creative and they're great how come and that's true, by the way, of even the most creative agencies who win the most awards. Uh, advertising agency people are being paid at half the rate of management consulting people. And consulting firms are growing and agencies are not. What do consulting firms say about themselves that agencies don't? They say, we're in business to help clients perform better. What do agencies say? We're in the business of doing creative work. So I said, well, if Kuhn, Thomas Kuhn, were looking at this industry, he'd say this is an industry in crisis and it needs a new paradigm. Mm -hmm. And probably an outsider will come in and articulate it. Well, Matt Baxter was an outsider. He's a young guy, only today, only 44 years old. Yeah. And he said, we need to be in the business of making clients perform better. That is our mission, not being creative. And then he implemented with his management team 
you know, the transformation that allowed all that to happen. So I said, let's give Matt credit for articulating a paradigm shift. And, and recognizing that there's a crisis to begin with. That's part of it. When the data doesn't match the theory, uh, scientists, when it reaches a sort of critical mass of not matching the theory, scientists will recognize that their field is in a crisis. And I think the point here is that agencies perhaps maybe haven't been recognizing that there's a crisis, despite all of that data that you outlined not really matching the theory. Well, listen, holding companies would not be, would not articulate that there's a crisis because their share prices grow. Yep. The uh, senior executives make a, a ton of money, hmm. right? And their model, as far as their model is concerned, it works. However, if you go down to the shop floor, you go onto an ad agency, you, you look at how little people are paid, how much work they're having to do, uh, how little confidence they have that this is a career for them, concern that, you know, something's going to blow up, their clients treat them badly, they get fired every three years, you know, down on the shop floor, there couldn't be a bigger difference between the agency industry at the shop floor of the agency hmm. and at the heights of either the C-suite of an agency or the C-suite in a holding company. Yeah. And it's a shame. It's kind of a shame, I think, that the divide between the senior leadership and the people on the shop floor is so great. It's, it's, a, lot of sh it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. There are many, many unhappy people sweating it out on the agency floor and, uh, and thinking that, you know, what they see, it does not make a viable future. But the leadership is not doing that. One exception, Matt Baxter at Huge. In my 30-year experience, I have to say and even blame myself that I have not been effective as a management consultant in getting C-suite executives to change the way they do things. In a way, that's why I wrote the first book and why I was so excited about writing this second book, Madison Avenue Makeover, because, wow, for the first time in 30 years, I've got a client. Yeah, a client. Let's call Matt a client mm -hmm. who is changing everything in the right directions. It was so exciting for me. Yeah. yeah. I was happy to write the book and honored to be a fly on the wall while this was going on and a pretty astonished at how hard it was for Matt and for his team to change all the things they needed to change because they had to go from the old way of doing it to a new way of doing it and thinking differently about it at the same time. That's what I, I want to get into now. The, the process, I suppose, of transforming the company. Like we said, Max was a newcomer to creative agencies. He'd really, you know, he'd worked for more than 20 years on the media side. And one of the first things he does is call this retreat with participants, including office presidents who were responsible for, for geographic regions, centered in Brooklyn, Washington, Chicago, Toronto, London, uh, Singapore. And there were corporate staff executives from finance, legal, HR, uh, uh, operations, you know, uh, I think it was 20 executives, I think you said. And he, he calls this retreat. And something you say in the book is that the, the notion that a team of 20 executives would get together with the CEO to brainstorm the future of the company was an entirely new concept. Um, could you, you know, get into what that was like and what the whole process of transformation was, what the nature of these discussions was? How did it go? Oh, sure. That was, it was uh, interesting. Well, bear in mind, this is 2021 and we were in the middle of COVID. 
and COVID had taken place the previous year and mm-hmm. Matt had been on board a couple of months, he had not actually physically met some of these people because of the restrictions on travel and there was remote working. He had spent several of his first few months Zooming with employees around the world to introduce himself. And, um, you know, he wanted to talk to the employees in every office, which he could only do by Zoom, and uh, find out what was going on to the extent to which people were talking to him about it. He also, uh, up to this point, had tried to gather as much data as he could through his finance director about what goes on in each office. Who are our clients? (laughs) Who are the good ones? Who are the bad ones? Uh, what's the size of their revenue? How profitable are we? Are we doing the right kind of work for them? And listen, I don't know if you've ever gone through that exercise yourself. I do as a consultant all the time. You don't get very much data that Mm -hmm. is useful. And so, and he hadn't even really met these 20 people uh, face-to-face because many of them were in remote locations. Mm. So, you know, the first day, uh, it was October, we were in Rhode Island, uh, a small state. We were in an inn on the ocean. The French doors were open. A very cool breeze was blowing in. We were dressed warm. We were all wearing masks. And Matt stood in front of everybody and said, hi, I'm your new CEO. So happy to meet you for the first time in person. And he knew, he didn't know enough about HUGE to single-handedly say, this is what we're going to do. And he was not inclined to do that with a creative agency anyway. He might have done it with a a media agency of the same size. But this was this, you know, this is a complicated creative agency of 12 offices, a long history, people he didn't know, and he didn't understand the business that well. He didn't know the business model that well. Hmm. So he had very limited... Uh, He had very limited objectives. The only thing he said is opening remarks for, I am going to be the antagonist in chief, you know, for the next several days, meaning we're all adults. Let's have an open debate and discussion. And what I'd really like to talk about is what does it take to be great? Hmm. What does it take to be a great company? Are we a great company? If we're not a great company, how do we become a great company? And you've got the information I don't. I just I just know what the top line financials look like for the last five years, and they're not good. Uh, but I don't know what you think. I don't really know what the previous CEO think. Uh, and in some ways, that's not what I need to worry about. I need to worry about what we are going to do together. And we're going to start by thrashing that out now. And this is a group exercise. This is not my exercise. This is what we're going to do together. We are a team. But, you know, uh, the way I want to play the game is I'm going to be an antagonist. And I'm going to ask certain questions. And I'd like you to talk, you know, to tell me what you think. And then I might challenge some of the things that you say. Let's not be afraid to be open with one another. That's what it was all about. And he did start out by saying, what makes a great, who is a great company? And, you know, the usual Amazon, Google, Netflix, Apple, they came out. (laughs) Are there any other great companies? I mean, it didn't, it wasn't General Motors. uh, It wasn't Ford. 
you know, it wasn't Blockbuster. Uh, it wasn't uh, Blue Black Blackberry. <laughs> you know, it wasn't those things. Geico came out. You know, people thought Geico was a great company. And then it was, well, what is it that makes a great company? And it wasn't, it wasn't just image and performance. It was something else that they had, a sustainability, hmm. a sustainability in what they were doing. And then, of course, you know, things moved on. And I laid this out in, in a detailed chapter in the book. All of the questions that were asked and, in general, the kinds of responses that that were laid out uh, in the several-day retreat. And I, I think that looking back on it, Matt was laying the groundwork for deciding on the new mission of the company. That's what That was the only objective. Hmm. It was a new mission. The new mission that was agreed was if we're going to be great in our space, we've got to generate improved results for clients and specifically accelerated top-line growth. That's what they need. And by the way, there's a ton of data about that. I've generated some of it myself. But if you look at the top advertisers globally from after the financial meltdown to pre-COVID, that's 2009 to 2019, 20 of the top 50 advertisers as a group did not grow at all. And that, that includes P&G, Unilever, Bank of America, all the retailers, mm -hmm. pharmaceutical companies, even car companies. So the funny thing is there's plenty of data out there that says, hey, for all this investment in digital and social media, a huge proportion of advertisers who've made a lot of investment are not growing at all. That's what they need. Who talks about that in the ad agency business? Nobody. What mm -hmm. people talk about is how great our creative is yeah. and awards that we win. So that was, you know, the paradigm shift took place that first retreat in October. What hadn't happened yet was, well, how do we, what is the realization of that paradigm shift? And I suppose the, the paradigm shift is a movement towards a suite of products designed to solve client problems. It's product-based pricing. It's a mission to improve clients' results, an understanding of their key performance problems, and, and a commitment, a joint commitment with the clients, and huge to, to solve those problems together. Those are the, some of the things you outlined. Yes, and uh, I would say among those, Ahmed, having an understanding of client performance problems I mean, it sounds logical, like if you're going to be helping client perform better, you need to know what pro what performance problems they have and why. Yeah. Uh, yet th that is generally not shared between advertisers and agencies. Uh, agencies, as a normal situation, do not have access to client five-year brand plans. Mm. And I think it's because, as advertisers told me, they don't trust their agencies. <laughs> they're not sure they're going to be around the entire five years. Why should they share this kind of intimate knowledge with them? We'll treat their vendors. They're doing something for us now, but they are not our intimate partners. And so one of the many things that Huge faced as a challenge, apart from having a mission, having fixed price products, and having a new organization, was they had to have a client-facing group of people that would engage clients in an adult discussion about well, why did you used to grow in the past and you don't grow now? What do you think 
is the source of that problem. What data do you have to support it? Is it just a hypothesis or is it a firm understanding based on data? Mm. By the way, that is what most consulting firms do in the first Mm. three months of an engagement is make sure that they and their client agree to what problem the consulting firm is going to help solve. I've never known an agency that went at it that way. (laughs) Unless the client said, uh, we need better penetration uh, within a certain market segment, or we need better first-party data. You know, sometimes the brief will be quite specific. But as a rule, clients do not believe that their relationship is specifically designed to solve identified performance problems that they share. Yep. And that is that is a serious problem. That's part of the paradigm issue. Mm-hmm. Because clients' paradigm for agencies as they are people that do the stuff we want them to do for a low price. <laughs> That's not the same thing as saying they're our partners to help us solve our performance problems. And and just to, I think that's a perfect way of, I suppose, leading into my last question to, to wrap up the whole discussion is if what is being proposed is a genuine, a genuinely new paradigm, then the data which was incongruent with the, the old paradigm, which essentially indicated to us that there was a problem with the old paradigm, it needs to slot nicely into this new paradigm. So I suppose my question is, how will we know that this this new paradigm has legs? How will we know that this new paradigm comports to our needs and to the data. Like you said, we're only really at the beginning, you know, we don't know if this is a success at this point. Uh, And you can cast some sort of judgment as to whether it worked, but, but how will we know it has and when will we know? Well, uh, we, I'm talking about outsiders. Yeah. May never know. Let me tell you who will know Hmm. the transformed agencies will know. Yeah. The clients who are engaged in the program will know. And uh, it would be a little bit like saying, well, well, how do we know that Bain's work works or mm. that BCG's work works? Yeah. If agencies move in this direction, whether they're holding company agencies or independent agencies, I would think that the data would be, number one, uh, are they able to pay their people more? Mm. You know, do we start to see a shift in the way agency people are paid? Why? Because... Uh, successful agencies that are delivering improved results for clients can charge a lot more money for those products. And that money should be paid to the people that are doing the work who are, you know, I think in a dreadful situation right now. Uh, The second thing I think we would see is greater longevity of the relationships. And the third thing I think we would see is greater longevity of chief marketing officers. I mean, let's let's face it, CMOs are replaced every three to four years because they're not delivering the goods. Hmm. Agencies are replaced every three or four years because they get fired. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the and they get fired when a new CMO comes in. Yeah. Uh, agency people are underpaid because agency fees are terrible for the amount of work they're doing. Hmm. And agencies don't have a lot of leftover money to pay their people well. So those are the macro indicators that if I were a CEO of a transform agency, I'd say, I'm going to be measuring the longevity of our relationship 
and the average salary that we're able to pay to our people and the success within their own organizations of the CMOs for whom we're working. Mm. Otherwise, I think we on the outside are going to get anecdotal uh, anecdotal data. Yeah. You know, yeah. I don't think it's it's pretty hard to measure it. Yeah. Uh, it just like we can't, you know, we can measure agency salaries through Glassdoor. Mm-hmm. We can measure employee satisfaction through Glassdoor. And we know that things are not great. Yeah. Uh, but we don't really know a lot of the other things that we we, we would need to know to, to see if the new theory of advertising agencies works. Yeah. Well, th- thank you so much for joining us, Michael. It's been so interesting. Um, I had a great time reading the book. Uh, and I'm sure our listeners uh, will have a great time too uh, if they read it. Um, Madison Avenue Makeover. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Thank you, Ahmed. Enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for listening to the Media Leader Podcast. This episode was edited by our production partners, Trisonic. You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time.